Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Andy Green, and today is Phil Collins Day. Phil Collins is going on tour. Well, he's already on tour, but he's going to be coming to America. And Andy has spoken to Phil Collins many times. Andy and Phil Collins are tight. This uh, latest interview we're going to play today, Andy talked with Phil about this wild box set that Phil Collins has, which is called Plays Well With Others. And it basically captures a lot of his collaborations with other artists. A lot of it's him playing drums with people because Phil Collins is a great drummer. Phil Collins was once one of the most maligned people in pop music. And and it's kind of turned around, of course. Rappers love him. Hipsters love him. And that's just for his pop career. There's actually at least two other parts of his career. There's the Genesis years, the pre-pop Genesis years. And then there's this whole other side of him as a drummer. So Andy talked with him about that. And he also talked to him about his tour. And there's some interesting things there, obviously, because Phil can't play drums anymore. He can't play drums and he can barely walk. So this whole tour, he's in a seat at the front of the stage for the entire show. It's a very different thing because back in the day he was so active he would bounce around like crazy and play drums a lot. So now his son plays drums and Phil has to just sit in a chair and just sing. Did he teach his son how to play drums? Is that what went down? Uh, yes. And his son, who's just 16, is a fantastic drummer that plays just like him. He has the same kit. When they play in the air tonight, he nails that solo. It's very impressive. I don't know if I would call it a solo. but yes, Well, I mean, it's something, right? It's solo-ish. <laughs> a fill, I would call it. Okay, uh, but it's like the yeah. most famous drum fill ever then, right? There is a weird thing, which is, I don't know of many guitarists or like bass players or rappers or anything who have sons who can do their thing exactly the way they can or better but all drummers seem to teach their children how to play drums Ringo's kid is a great drummer plays with the who Max Weinberg's kid Jay Weinberg is a great drummer who played with the Street Band briefly and now is the drummer in Slipknot wears a mask and everything yeah I think that's an unexplored phenomenon is the weird genetic slash environmental drumming passing on thing yeah you're right it's it's like the family business it's a bizarre thing only drummers well but then we were going to play some of the music you're going to be talking about with Phil Collins and one is from this weird pre-Genesis band he had, right? Yeah, in the very late 60s, he was cast in a boy band called Flaming Youth, and they were wildly unsuccessful. And even Phil, when you mention their name, he just laughs at their music, but he wanted on the box set to sort of show how he started. Let's hear Flaming Youth. Imagine Phil Collins in a band called Flaming Youth. I'm going to let this play. <laughs> It's literally listened to the Flower People by Spinal Tap. Now. Yeah. I mean, it was like 1969, so they were trying to just hop on this bandwagon. It was incredibly <laughs> bad, incredibly, it just didn't sell anything. But the guitarist, Ronnie Carroll, became his friend for life and is still a part of his touring band. I love that. That's real loyalty. Good for, well, but what did he do all those other, like when he was in Genesis, he was just working a job or something and no, then they I don't went think and got him? he joined the touring band until 96, actually. And, and I think the band, they were not happy about it because this rando is just coming in that's phil's best friend well you know axel axel rose of course <laughs> attempted the same thing with this guy paul Yug or huge yeah. uh, who was brought in in the very last days of the original guns and roses right and slash and duff despised this guy right that said that guy did help co-write some earlier guns and roses songs i think he was a big part in writing the song oh my god so that's a whole other story but that another classic move is to suddenly bring in the old best friend well it's a tough move because the band knows 
that he can't be fired really you know so it's a plus he's sort of like a spy you know you yeah know, i think that's the problem yeah well that <laughs> that's a thing there's a lot of brian eno songs he was a frequent collaborator with brian eno and that's what's a thing that's so fascinating about phil collins is he was, again, the least cool person on earth. And Brian Eno has always been the most impeccably cool person in music. R- right. Well, A, they did this back in the 70s when Phil was a pretty anonymous drummer. And I think Phil got so uncool because he had so many damn hits in the 80s. And when that happens, when the cool music is like the replacements and stuff, but what's actually on the radio is Phil Collins. Yeah, like a bald guy in a suit. Yes. You know, with all these obnoxious pop hits. It's not like it's a mystery why, why he was no. that cool. But, you know, I, th- I think that the quality of some of the music is what won. But let's hear this Brian Eno song, Mother Whale Eyeless, that Phil Collins played on. Drinking morning Awesome song. And then he played with, of all people, John Cale on the song Pablo Picasso. And again, this is it's like a tour of all the most credible people of a former member of the Velvet Underground with Phil Collins. And it's a fascinating sort of intersection. Let's hear Pablo Picasso because you guys do talk about that. Sounds just like Susu Studio. Yeah. And- <laughs> Then this is a very famous instance. Phil Collins played drums on the song Intruder for Peter Gabriel in what, 1979? Uh, Yes. So this is a famous thing. It's not really something that Phil Collins per se did exactly, but it's something that happened to his drums. Long story short, he was playing, it's a simple beat, via sort of an accident, the engineer, Yu Pajam, heard the drums through this sort of studio talkback microphone, and a couple things happened. He heard a combination of compression and a giant reverb that cut off basically with what they call a gate. So you hear a snare drum within this giant bath of reverb, but not the reverb that comes after the sound finishes. So it creates this boom. And when that sound happened, again, nothing that Phil really did, although he said he was playing to the sound because he could hear it, that actually established the sound of the snare drum in the 80s. It's this, it's what you hear on Born USA or a million other songs, that, that giant snare drum. And people like Hyam and stuff are now actually emulating that because it's a thing. But let's hear Intruder for a second. Yeah, Yeah, and then when Phil made In the Air Tonight a few months later, he was using the same thing. Yeah, I mean, In in the Air Tonight popularized this sound, helped popularize this sound from this like super weird Peter Gabriel song. Tell us the story of what happened with Phil Collins and All Things Must Pass. It's a funny story. It was pre-Genesis. It was basically his Flaming Youth period. And his agent called him up, his manager. Then he goes, Phil, I have a shocking thing for you, but they want you to play on a George Harrison record. It was Phil Spector as a producer. So there was a studio full of people, and they wanted somebody to play the bongos. <laughs> so Phil, he just dives down there. He like goes to Abbey Road, and he plays on like three takes of it. I forget what the song is. And then Phil leans into the microphone. He goes, okay, I want to try it again, but without the percussionist. Let's just try it again. <laughs> and then he went home, and then he bought the album a few months later, and he wasn't on it. But he did get to play on a Paul McCartney song, a song, Angry. Yeah, which and even Phil says is not Paul's best song. <laughs> perhaps not. Let's hear that for a moment. Angry. 
I actually kind of like this song. But again, Phil was such a good drummer that he was the guy who was supposed to play with Led Zeppelin or one of two drummers, right? At Live he Aid. did, yeah. yeah. Right. He's who they picked. That, that was a disaster, though. He was ill-rehearsed. He was ill-rehearsed. The bounds were rehearsed. And Jimmy was handed a guitar that was very out of tune. It was a disaster. But by this point, Phil is the biggest star in music in a lot of ways. And so he's pulled in by Eric Clapton and Robert plant and everybody because they want hits and he was like the golden touched guy that every song that he played on was a hit so let's hear andy green and phil collins they start out by talking about this uh this box set plays well with others uh, you know i came up with uh, with the songs or the tunes that i wanted to have on the record and, and you know that soon mounted up and then i left it to the lawyers really <laughs> yeah are there any songs that, that you couldn't get because the rice got too complicated? Uh, I wanted to put a Steve Winwood track on, uh, but he was going to do a live album uh, himself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he just he just said that he'd rather keep it back. So, And that was from been on the fourth CD from the Party at the Palace set, which was, you know, that was, that was a great pool to, to call from. Um, but no, otherwise it was just a question of going through my playlists, you know, things I've collected over the years. And uh, most things, uh, I believe, were included. I can't think of anything that was particularly left out. I like hearing the Flaming Youth song even. I think that very few people have even heard Flaming Youth music. No, well, you know, good luck to them. Um <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, you know, it's, some of it is pretty dated, but I, I had to include, you know, the stuff that sounds dated as well as others. I mean, there, there were some things in the 70s which I, I remember doing, mm-hmm. like there was an album by William Lyle, an album by Colin Scott, you know, like the stuff that John Anthony, the Genesis producer in the old days, um, you know, he kind of hired me to do lots of that stuff. And and that probably stands up less. But no, I mean, for me, it gets, like I think, CD two and three, well, two, three, and four, really, I mean, stand up better than CD one. But it's all there. If you don't like it, skip it. <laughs> now, there's lots on here that's you and Brian Eno. Did you first meet Brian at the Lamb on Broadway sessions, or was it before that? No, no, it was on those sessions. He was upstairs doing... Uh, taking Tiger Mountain and um, we were downstairs doing the lamb and and Peter and some of the other guys uh, were big Roxy fans uh, and uh, I didn't count myself in the Roxy music camp but um, when it came to calling him down to sort of put you know some vocals through his uh, his synth then um, I got sent back up as payment to play on a track on that album Mm -hmm. of his and and I guess I mean we must have got on very well because you know I got lots of calls from him to do you know Another Green World Before and After Science and music for films Uh, and they they were great sessions to do and and very informative as as to a new new and different way of working that uh, was a long way from Genesis. And how did you wind up on John Cale's Pablo Picasso? <laughs> well, again, you know, I can't remember how this stuff happened. I mean, I remember the studio. I remember the day. It was 
me and Chris Spedding and uh, maybe Brian Hodges was on bass, I can't remember, but but uh, yeah, I got called down to play on that album, and um, it was interesting, you know, because he was kind of one of those artists that did the vocals at the same time as the track, and he was, you know, had his hands over his ears with the headphones, and he was screaming into the microphone, it was kind of, it was interesting, wow. but uh I haven't seen him since. I mean, that was the only time I worked with him. So. Wow. How clearly do you remember establishing the drum sound on Intruder for Peter Gabriel? Oh, well, like it was yesterday. I mean, th- that was at a time when Peter didn't really have a band because he couldn't afford an American band full time. So, you know, I was uh, at a loose end and I, I was going through you know, the divorce and... Uh, I think I'd done most of my demos for face value. And um, I said, if if you need a drummer, man, you know, I'm around, I'm free. And uh, he took me up on the offer and I went down to uh, his house in Bath along with a a couple of other people. Uh, John Giblin was one and Joe Partridge was another. Just kind of live for a month, you know, and and kind of just play every day and and help him routine some of these songs that were going to, you know, going to, be on the third album. Steve Lillywhite wasn't convinced by me, I don't think. He he wanted to audition me. <laughs> um, and uh, anyway, that happened at a rehearsal room near London Bridge. I turned up at the townhouse in, in uh, London, Shepherd's Bush, and uh, we started routining some of these songs that we'd been you know, working on in in Bath. The first thing that happened when I got there was that Peter said, you know, take away the cymbals. I don't want any metal on the record, which I thought was a little um, stubborn on his part, but, you know, it was his album. So we started putting tom-toms up where there would be cymbals, and I started to uh, just play around the drums, getting comfortable, and, and, and Hugh Padgham started to get a sound and I, I had asked you, as I usually did when I was working with an engineer, to let me hear what they were doing, you know, in the headphones. So I heard this sound being achieved, and uh, I started playing with the sound that I was hearing. So I started to play, you know, like a kind of a jump bottom type thing, you know, and uh, Peter said, uh, what is that you're playing? And I said, I'm just playing with the sound, you know. And he said, well, I like that. Give me that for 10 minutes. <laughs> so I did. And, and I, at the end of it, I said, what are you going to do with it? And he said, I, I don't know yet. So I said, well, if you know, can I have a copy of it? Because I felt part ownership. I got a copy. And when it turned out that he, he was going to adapt one of his songs to fit the drum part, I said, well, can I, have a, can I have a credit at least? You know, if I can't use the thing, I'd like to have a credit. So he agreed to that, and um, you know, I started my very strong friendship with Hugh Padgham. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and then we went from there to do my records, and then Genesis records, and yeah, the rest is sonic history. <laughs> You know, I'm amazed by how you found time in the 80s to do all these other sessions because you were in a huge band and solo. You were, you were doing so many concerts. So how did you find time to do all this stuff? I don't know. I mean, you know, they, they were I had a patient wife, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it, it was one of those things where, and I mentioned this in the sleeve notes, it's like Mr. Incredible, you know, 
on his way to his wedding and sort of seeing something happening and saying, I, I, could, I could do that. I could do that. Uh-huh. I've got time for that. A lot of it was just great playing opportunities. I mean, obviously there's only 24 hours in my day and, and uh, you know, if someone called me and asked me to do it, I would make the time available to get on with it, you know? Right. I'm sure you're happy to be on the Paul McCartney song because you didn't wind up on the George Harrison records. You could finally be on a, <laughs> a, a Beatle record, right? Yeah, you know, Hugh Padgham was, was kind of engineering that record. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I, I guess Paul wanted to, to use some different people. And um, I got the call, took the drums down, and um, and we did this, this song, which, you know, wasn't one of his best songs. And but, but Townsend was there playing guitar. That was great, because, you know, when Pete Townsend smiles and he's playing, you know you're doing something right, you know. And uh, uh, Wix Wickens, who is now in Paul's band yeah. as a keyboard player, you know, he was on the session, and it was me and Townsend and, and McCartney. But yeah, it was it was an interesting day, you know. Uh, Linda McCartney was still around, and she was taking photographs. So I got a lovely photograph out and sent to me wow. from her. You know, it was just after Live Aid. I remember that. Wow. So we did that, yeah, and then, of course, the George Harrison thing I've documented quite accurately in, in the book. Right, it's hysterical. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Andy Green, and we've been playing Andy's interview with Phil Collins. And Phil Collins is hitting the United States with his tour. He's not playing drums anymore. He's actually not even standing up. He's, he sits down and sings. And as he's about to tell Andy in the interview we're playing, he, he thinks it's kind of a, a growing old gracefully thing. Yeah, it's sort of a strange thing at first to think of a singer that just sits there for the entire show, but I've seen clips on YouTube, and it seems to work, because he's able to just focus on his singing, really. It's like when Dave Grohl broke his leg. he just kind of sit there. Yeah. But he should get that throne. Right, yeah. It's the same throne that was actually used by Axl Rose, too. That's right. They should give it to Phil Collins. Yeah. yeah. Phil deserves a throne. Yeah, because his chair now, it, it's like an office desk chair. It's very... I've seen that, and that's, why yeah. I, that's what made me think of that. I think he needs a fancier chair. Yeah, yeah, I think so, too. Or like the Clarence Clemens throne or something, too, when he sat on, on stage. Something. Yeah. All right, well, let's hear Andy Green and Phil Collins. So, how was the tour? I know that you were in South America recently. Yeah, um, went to South America, I know, a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. And last year, we did Europe and doing America in October, just for like three weeks, you know, yeah. and um, we're supposed to be doing Australia next year, early next year. So, you know, just picking three weeks off at a time, and it, it's great fun, I have to say that I didn't think I'd ever say that again, but yeah, it is great fun. I got my son playing drums, and uh, that adds to it. I mean, he's been totally accepted by these uh, this band of, of hard nuts, you know, like Sklar, Leland Sklar, and, you know, my, my group of musicians, and, and they all uh, accept him as an equal. They've all been very proud of him and supportive. So uh, it's all going uh, according to plan, and as long as can think of somewhere to go and I get a few breaks then we'll keep doing it so the first few shows did you find it a bit of an adjustment to be sort of to be seated did you worry that would change the dynamic of the live show with you in the chair yeah I I did because in the old days I ran around like crazy you know and um, and I think I was worried that that's what people would expect but actually I mean, there was an English reviewer that uh, pointed this out, that, you know, there's a kind of growing old gracefully thing to it. 
and, and I, you know, I go on stage and I, I stay seated the whole night. The band picks up some of the slack in terms of the energy, but it means that people are focused on the music. Yeah, and so far it's been it hasn't been a problem at all. I mean, it's been been very positive. Anything, yeah. so yeah, you know, it's it's kind of a little bit different for me, but I, it's just it's physically impossible for me to stand for two and a half hours, right. you know, without going through some kind of pain. But um, no, it's all, it's all going well. Yeah, because the fans are buying tickets to hear you sing and and watch you sing. I mean, that's yeah, what they care about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, are you surprised at all that after all these years that you're still able to play these huge, huge venues? Yes, I think that's probably, if I was truthful, mm-hmm. that was one of the reasons why I took my time in coming back because I, I, I just didn't know if there was an audience anymore. I think the reissues helped prove that, that there was and the critical kind of review looking back at my career and, and coming up with different... I mean, you know, I, I, as you know, as well as I do, I was not the critic styling, so... But suddenly, I was being reevaluated, and I think that made me feel a lot better about myself. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, having the shows, I mean, the shows... I did this radio program in London when the uh, European shows went on sale last... Well, a year ago, last June. And they went to a commercial break, and when they came back, um, it all sold out. It was, it was um, 15 seconds, you know. I mean, it was like, that was like, oh, my God, I better be good now. Wow. It, you know, and the same thing in America. I mean, I kind of felt that America, I had kind of left America behind because, you know, I mean, it's such a huge, fast, transient music scene. And... Uh, it just shows that there are people that still want to hear it because you don't hear it too often every day. Yeah. So are you writing new songs? Are you thinking at all about recording new stuff at some point in the future? Well, I, I will have to. You know, someone said yesterday that it's been 16 years since a new, new album, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize it was that long at all. But, um, yeah, I will. I mean, I do have a little studio in my house, but there is, you know, myself and my missus, we have an office in the same room, so the busier the office is, the less chance I get of going in there. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I make notes. I've got lyrical ideas. I've got. I'm, I make notes and I keep them in a place that, at some point, I'll get to them. And how's your health? Are you sort of getting stronger as the years go by since all your surgeries and everything? Mm-hmm. Well, not particularly, no. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, the health's okay. I mean, it's, you know, I got this paralyzed foot, which uh, the back operation mm-hmm. kind of left me with a paralyzed right foot. Um, I still have a bit of a problem playing the drums. Mm-hmm. No, but I mean, in general, health is good. Good. Is there any chance in a year or two of some sort of Genesis project, uh, like some concerts or anything? <laughs> I, I wouldn't say there isn't a possibility. You know, me, Mike, and Tony, we are pretty close still. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's, I can't imagine what it would be like if I didn't go to drums. Right. But, you know, there's, anything's possible, so... Yeah, but with Nick on drums, it could be fantastic, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Tony and Mike have both been to see the show in London, and they both were raving about Nick. And Mike made the appropriate comment. He said, well, you know, he just gets it. He just gets what he's 
needed and what is required and why you're doing this for that song. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a wonderful thing to say, um, and he was 16 at that point. So I think if we did anything, I think it would have to be with Nick on drums because uh, I, I don't think I'm capable of it. Yeah. And I think their opinion of Nick is high enough for them to take him on board as part of the band, you know. Wow. I think a lot of Genesis fans, they will hear you say that now and get super excited. Are they wrong to, to be excited at this possibility? Is it too remote, you think? Uh, well, well, you know, I mean, I, I'm saying it to you. I yeah. haven't really said it to Tony and Mike. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I did mention to Tony very quietly that if we did anything again, probably be with Nick on drums, and he, he kind of didn't say no. Right. But I'm not sure if he heard me or not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Well, in the meantime, I am looking forward to your show at the Barclays Center. That's here in Brooklyn. I'll, I'll definitely be at that. Uh, yep. I'm looking forward to it, too. Yeah, I will not take more of... So that was Andy Green with Phil Collins. And one of the things that Phil said is that there's a possibility of a Genesis reunion. Now, of course, Phil can't play drums, so the question is how that would work. And I guess the idea is that his son would play drums, and Phil would kind of fill in a little bit. Well, it depends if it's Genesis with the 80s lineup of just Phil McIntoni or the 70s lineup with Peter Gabriel. Right. If it was pop Genesis, then Phil would just sing. It would be great. But with Peter Gabriel, it gets a little more complicated. Yeah, and that's a thing that... They didn't have huge hits in the States or in Europe, really, but there's a huge cult following for Genesis of the Peter Gabriel era. And if they ever toured, it would be a huge, huge deal. There would be a weird messaging thing because they would have to be like, no, it's not the Genesis that has the songs that your average person has heard of, but it is the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway Genesis. Peter Gabriel probably would never agree to this in the first place, right? And you said he- They came close in 05. They met about it and Peter was very interested in it. It just didn't happen. Now, Peter Gabriel has not released a solo album in like 20 years or at least a, an it, album of new songs he released one in 2002 and that was the last one and since 1991 he's released one album okay so 16, 16 years, years ago, ago. Yes. yeah and i think he told you that he had 100 songs written 10 yeah, years ago i met him <laughs> it was in 05 he told me that his next album is called i slash o which is a follow-up to to so us and up he always likes them to be just two letters and he told me that he had over 100 songs and it would be ready soon that was 13 years ago Wow, I'm sure he's uh, he's working on it in shifts, apparently. Yeah. And what has Peter said to you about his feelings about reuniting with Genesis? He sees it as his school band, and he says, look, they had much more success after I left, so yeah, it doesn't make much sense. And he's just very reluctant to go in the past, but he toured with Sting last year. And every night of the tour, Sting sang a bit of Dancing with the Moonlit Night by Genesis. And on the last show of the tour, it was Peter that sang it. It was the first time that he sang a song by Genesis in 30 years. The fans must have gone insane. They went insane. Yes, it was a huge deal. And Steve Hackett, their guitarist for 70s, he tours and plays huge concerts of just Genesis songs. So the audience is there. It just requires Peter to want to do it. The idea I just had, which I think would not work, is a sort of split tour because it would make no one happy, would it? With Phil singing and Peter no, singing. I mean, when they toured with Phil in 07, they played Giant Stadium. I mean, it was a huge deal, you know, which is kind of weird to even think about now, but they remain a a very popular band. What if they called it a a Lamb Lies Down on Broadway tour? I think that would make it clear what we're talking about. I think the messaging would be pretty clear. If it's Peter Gabriel back in Genesis, it would be marketed in that way. Dude, there would be thousands of people there waiting for I Can't Dance. I I think not. I think people, they get that it's like two bands. 
No, they no. don't. No. no, they don't. No, because your average, and I'm not insulting your average older pop listener, but you really think all those people knew that there was another incarnation of Genesis that was a, a legendary prog band? I do not think so. The members of your family, Andy, did they know that there was another Genesis that was different than the Genesis that was on the radio? Or did they not even know about the one on the radio? Because no, I would say, yeah. I think because they're in my family and they're such huge fans. I don't think my sister is a real fan of any of it, but I think my parents are aware that there's a Peter Gabriel Genesis. I doubt that they can really, like, explain it in an integral detail but I think they have some vague sense that there is a different version I think all right fair enough perhaps I picked the wrong example there yeah I guess most people don't know but the tribute bands for Genesis are always the Peter Gabriel era right they play the Royal Albert Hall and they sell it out well it's kind of an object lesson in one band in the two types of music fame it's yeah. really interesting it's the kind that's on the radio and there's the kind that has a deep core yeah, fan base that a phil collins genesis tribute show that would not be a big deal but the peter gabriel one because with pop genesis it's all casual fans with the 70 genesis it's fiercely devoted prog fans that all feel that they're better than yes even that they're the prog band you don't get that anymore where essentially under the same name something is two different acts it used to be that things would just continue it's sort of it's obviously not the same name but it's like jefferson starship how it just back then you just continue through the decades and, and change like yes we, yeah or, right yes it would be another great example it's like we used to be a skiffle band then we were a prog band now we're an 80s pop band we just keep yeah. the name it, it's 55 yeah, years later but they you know. changed with such precision as soon as the 80s started they got haircuts and drum machines and the whole thing changed it was immediate I wish just one of these bands had taken it all the way and become like a hip hop act and then an EDM <laughs> act. Just the, like kept or going, like never, never let it die. In yeah, like exactly. Yeah. yeah, like just take it and follow every trend. I think Genesis should have done that. Yeah. If there's anyone who could have put it off, it could have been Genesis. Anyway, this has been the today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We heard some of Andy's interview with Phil Collins. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume Channel 106 at 1 p.m. on Friday, live from the studio. And in the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's iTunes or elsewhere. And maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes or elsewhere. And you can also subscribe to us so you make sure you get every episode. As always, thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.